Hello, my interviewee and I would like to welcome you to this edition of Toby Haydock's Who's Round. You belong to us. You will be like us. light lunch and here we are in a top secret location in London uh, and I'm here with somebody who's something of an icon in Doctor Who I have to say so it's a delight to uh, to get me to ask him who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Um, should I say my name? Yes I think so. <laughs> well yes this top secret location I'm glad I found it. Uh, my name is Kilgariff, Michael Kilgariff uh, and I'm, I've been an actor for uh, well it'll be something uh, 60, 60 odd years I suppose, approaching 60 years since I started. Um, I was born in Brighton in 1937, which was just before the war, and of course my earliest memories are of, of the wartime, which is very strange really at the seaside because there was this lovely beach and sand at low tide and the pier, and you couldn't go anywhere near them because of mines. You know, they were all wired off in case they, the Germans uh, tried to land there. So uh, it wasn't until a couple of years after the war that I was able to actually get down onto the beach and the sea. And then I found it terrifying, and I ran away screaming because it, it was far rougher and the waves were far bigger than I'd been aware of, having all those years just looked at it from the Marine Parade behind. But. Um, and of course, after the war, things were very different. My parents, I'm an only child, my parents were absolutely devoted to each other and I had a very happy childhood. Uh, and they sent me to this uh, school where they believed <laughs> it was, uh, it, it was a, a school run by a, a Roman Catholic order of brothers. And oh, did they knock us about, were they brutal? If you misbehaved, they gave you what they called a holy beating. Wouldn't be allowed now, but it isn't. It's it's illegal now, isn't it? Not allowed to hit children in schools. But it was pretty rugged altogether. And I do remember the famous appalling winter just after the war. And I tell children this now, and they look at me with their jaws dropped. They cannot believe that it was so cold in the classroom that there was ice on the ink in the ink wells. <laughs> Well, I think well at all. <laughs> it seemed like medieval times. But anyway, I stuck at that till the uh, O levels and uh, left school. And I had to leave school after O levels. My, uh, uh, and my father arranged for me to have interviews, and I got a job in Barclays Bank as a bank clerk. What could be nice? My father had been a freelance all his life, doing all sorts of things, um, minicab driving. He'd been a minicab driver mostly, uh, which was fine just after the war because nobody had cars. And even if you had a car, there was a problem with petrol. You could only have petrol, a very limited amount for private use. But it, and it was different colours for private use and business use. I mean, people have forgotten this. So if you were using a car for private use, in other words, taking my mother and me somewhere, and he had the wrong colour petrol, that was a, a, a criminal offence. You could go to jail. So we never went in the car because he only ever had business colour pen. It was red and blue, something like that. Never went in the car. I don't ever remember going in it with him. <laughs> uh, 
because um, Ivan Novello famously did go to jail. One of his fans inadvisedly filled up his car with business petrol, and um, he got three months, and he never really recovered from it. So, uh, but as the years went by after the war, of course, prosperity began to return to the country, and people started getting their own cars, and, and also began to fly abroad for holidays rather than coming down from Manchester in the north north of England to Brighton, the south coast, for their holidays. They started flying off to, you know, Spain and Ibiza and all that, and uh, guaranteed sun. So Brighton really lost its living, you know, for quite uh, in quite a short time. So my father put his name down. I remember this for a, a taxi license, and every year uh, he'd go to the town hall see how he was getting on, and his name gradually went up the list. It took 16 years before he got his license, uh, which was fine. By then, uh, I'd, I'd long left home. I'd, um, as I said, I, I became a, a clerk, a junior clerk in Barclays Bank, before the days, of course, of uh, computers. It was all handwritten ledgers, handwritten statements. I absolutely loathed it, too. I really written me quite ill with it because I was covered in spots. <laughs> dreadful, dreadful job. Uh, but what I wanted to do really as, as a boy in school, I wanted to be a pianist, a musician, because my parents had sent me to a local teacher, Madame Fairbridge, L-R-A-M, was a sweet old duck, and she grounded me very thoroughly in the rudiments of music and, and I went in for sort of competitions and won little prizes here and there, and uh, I loved it. I loved playing Bach and Mozart. Didn't have much interest in popular music at all uh, until trad came along. I loved trad, trad music. It reminded me of Bach, actually, the way all the different soloists interleave, uh, intertwine. So, and I was the only boy. I was the best in my school on the keys, quite a lot of boys played, but I was the best. And I was the only boy ever allowed to play the school organ in the chapel. And that was great. But by the time I got to about the age of 15 or 16, I began to realize that although I was pretty good, I wasn't good enough, not really to make a professional. I did have uh, shortcomings. I couldn't play by ear. Whereas my father, who couldn't read a note, he could play any, any popular song you get, which used to infuriate me, because I couldn't do it. I could read, he put the music in front of me, but without the music, I was, I was lost. But then at around that time, uh, 15, 16, I was in the bank at 16, I started doing amateur dramatics. I suddenly found a, a new passion, and that was the stage. I thought, this is for me. I, I thought, yes, yes. I'm not going to make it as a musician, as a pianist, but I can, I just think I can do it as an actor. So after two and a half years, which was quite long enough, even my, <clears throat> my parents agreed I'd given it a, a good enough shot, I started answering adverts in the stage newspaper for, um, for jobs, and uh, I got one, and it was up in Birkenhead. I'd never been further north than London in my life, so going to Birkenhead is from Brighton. <laughs> it's like going to the moon. <laughs> anyway, off I went, and it, what an adventure. 
And that was the start of it. So uh, one thing led to another. I met people, you know, the way you do and you're recommended and you hear about things. And I found an agent in London. Uh, and uh, the first three or four or five years were quite good. You know, I never stopped. I did <clears throat> a lot of repertory, a lot of repertory work. And that's a, that's a killer, really. You've, uh, <laughs> that's make or break time. Weekly rep, you know, learning big parts in the afternoon, rehearsing in the morning, learning in the afternoon, and then doing last week's play in the evening, twice nightly, one of my reps. So uh, things were always going wrong, of course, people missing cues and forgetting to come on and drying and all that. So uh, I learned how to cope with all that, which became <clears throat> very useful. On one particular occasion, when I, one of my early parts on television, BBC, it was all still live then, but there was no filming or recording. Uh, and uh, even the drama was all live. <coughs> Excuse me. And there was a moment when I was playing King Edward IV, and I had a battle brewing, and in the distance you could hear these primitive guns. <coughs> and I had the line, they're getting closer. And I thought to myself, with all my rep experience, what if the gun sound doesn't happen? What am I going to say? I can't say they're getting closer. You know. uh, I thought of some line, I can't remember what it was. And sure enough, the performance, no guns, no guns. So whatever this line was that I was ready with, uh, I came out and stopped a very nasty moment. And then the guns fired and in the distance cannons. And we carried on. The director afterwards, he was almost in tears on his knees in front of me. You saved my show, you saved my show. I said, well, I didn't think anything of it really, weekly rep. Uh, <clears throat> you did that sort of thing all the time. Oliver Reed was in that, wasn't he? That, uh, Ollie Reed, yes, it was his, he was a pain in the neck. Uh, he was so full of himself. Six months out of RADA, you know, he'd done nothing. And I remember we did do a bit of pre filming. Uh, and that was where I was the king leading my troops uh, and I had to jump on a horse in full armour and uh, lead my troops through this archway with a camera on top of the arch filming was going through and uh, my Ollie is my brother Ollie Reed, uh, Duke of Gloucester and one or two other actors other members of the royal family on horses and then behind them the foot troops foot soldiers with their pikes and I'd never been on a horse in my life. So, but it was a very kind horse master there who showed me how to get on it without looking too stupid. So we got on, I got on it, and uh, then we waited while the camera was moved. Only said to me, you know, you look like a sack of potatoes on that horse. I thought, well, that's nice. You know, one actor to another, a brother owe me. You could have said, look, old son, you know, keep, keep your wrists down and your heels down. You look so much better. But no, he had to say that. You know. Anyway, action, and I started going through, and dug my heels in, and the horse moved. Wonderful. Off we went, through the arch, and I heard, cut! I thought, what's gone wrong? And I turned, and Ollie Reed, the great horseman, his horse didn't like where we were going, and had peeled off down the side path through the woods, and disappeared out of sight. So I got no more horse advice from Ollie Reed after that. But I remember he was, uh, he was full of himself even then. Yes, strangers should remember that. Wow. Still, it was nice to do. And um, then after, 
the, what came in after live, live drama, which was pretty hairy, but what came in was ampexing. And this was an early version of taping. But that was almost as bad as live. Because uh, if, you, if you made a, a boo-boo or a dry or did something terrible and they had to stop, we were all told that each edit cost something like £400. I'm sure that was nonsense, but it was very expensive to edit. So you really, you did the whole thing in one go, virtually as live. Yeah. You know, it's much the same. Nice really. to know that an edit costs more than you do. Well, exactly, a <laughs> great deal more, yes. That was, so they went on, but then, of course, in fact, what used to happen sometimes, they'd carry on after a cock-up, and then the, uh, the star, I'd say, look, we'll have to do that again. Lovely. And the director would say, no, no, it's fine, it's fine, fine, because they didn't want it, the expense of the cut of the tape. So what the stars used to do was say a very rude word. I won't say it there, but they'd say a very rude word so that the director would have to cut. <laughs> I remember Sid James doing that. Uh, but then, of course, ordinary taping came in and became a piece of cake, really. Just like radio drama, that used to be all in one go. You did that in one take completely. I remember one director saying to me, uh, saying to the whole company, Right, well, we've got... To, they used to... The booking... They used to book... Uh, if it was an hour play, the recording time would be an hour and a half. So they'd always give you 50% more to do any edits. And, come. and she... I remember her saying, anybody calls and gives me an edit, it's going to cost them a bottle of champagne. <laughs> <laughs> so, so everybody was very careful. Uh, yes, even radio was... Um, I didn't do I didn't do much radio, uh, live radio. I think taping had already come in from radio when I started. That was in the sixties, and uh, I decided to try and uh, establish myself in London rather than going around the provinces all the time in uh, tours and reps and pantos. Though I did have the enormous enormous pleasure and, and thrill of <coughs> being a pantomime, playing the villain and playing the heavy. Uh, the ogre in a pantomime at the London Palladium, 1959, Harry Seacombe. I was only 20, 22, so that was a great thrill. But uh, trying to establish myself in London wasn't so easy, and uh, I started, uh, the only time I had to do it really, I, I worked in a minicab firm. It was the first minicabs to be established in London. You had private hire and you had taxis. But minicabs were, were new, and they were little Fiats, I think they were. And they had an advert stuck on the side. It made a great, made a great uh, impact at the time. And I worked on the night shift answering the telephone. I wasn't the only actor there. We were known as equities. Because <laughs> there were about 10 or 12 people working there under a supervisor. And uh, you all had your own phone, and you take the messages. <clears throat> And the great advantage of that was that uh, the shift went from 11 at night till 8 in the morning, so you were free during the day <laughs> for, uh, for interviews and auditions. And I did that for a while, and then I drove for a bit as well. I did a few months actually driving. But then uh, things changed for the better for me. I think 64 it was. Uh, three wonderful things happened in the 60s. Well, four, I suppose, altogether. One was that... Um, I got involved in, in uh, radio. 
I, I did an audition and then was asked to uh, to be in a play with uh, a wonderful old director who heard my audition and uh, uh, called Archie Campbell. And after that, I was asked to join the rep because an actor had uh, who'd been on the rep, a well-established name, he uh, he was ill. So I was asked to join the rep just for three months. Normally it was a six-month contract, renewable for a maximum of two years. So anyway, that's the poor chap. He died, in fact, so I was asked to stay on. So that was my start to video, which was great. I mean, it did me in very good stead for many, many years. I was on the rep twice after that and did, did of course, a lot of freelance as well. Also in the 60s, I started doing old-time music hall. Initially... Uh, in a pub down in Greenwich. It was to raise money and to keep uh, local interest alive for rebuilding of the local theatre, which had been a music hall, and the council were going to demolish it. But a friend of mine who lived there, an actor I worked with at Bristol Old Vic, called Johan Hooper, he, uh, oh. he, he, uh, he started um, this music hall and the local, uh, local agitation. And in fact, of course, it's still there. It was rebuilt. He was successful in that. Uh, and this music hall ran in this pub in a room over the pub. It had been a licensed Victorian music hall, actually. It had been a genuine music hall. That ran for about seven or eight years, and so that opened up a whole new field of endeavour for me. And I met a great chum, a man who became a great chum of mine, Johnny Dennis. He was a comic. I mostly appeared as, um, as the chairman and produced, started producing shows there because I loved it and also played the piano occasionally for shows. Yeah. And I even started orchestrating yeah. there, which I was very keen to do. Yeah. I, I could only ever play the piano, but I wanted to expand that, and I started reading books about yeah. orchestrating and arranging. And I paid for musicians yeah. myself to, to go and play the shows there for just, you know, to see if I got it right. But I can tell you that writing art music for an instrument that you can't play yourself is an exercise, of course, in, uh, like trumpet or fiddle or clarinet. But then to put that music in front of a professional and hear them play it is a very, very exciting and thrilling thing to do. So I, and it stood me in good stead because as years went by and I, this, this chum of mine, Johnny Dennis, who I met there, we went into management and we put shows, we went all over the world. And sometimes I found myself arranging for small bands, you know, and it was, having had that experience and uh, knowledge, auto, an autodidact I was, that came in very handy. So that was the other thing that happened in the 60s. And uh, thirdly, I, uh, I did my first Doctor Who. <laughs> uh, and uh, fourthly, and I should have put this first, really, uh, I mentioned that my first radio play was for... Uh, an eccentric man called Archie Campbell and his secretary I thought oh she's a cracker and uh, cut a long story short we've been married now for 47 years 46, 47 years she later, she later became a producer herself and she still does a bit of freelance uh, she does um, books you know audio books she produces them uh, so that was uh, and, and when I finished the rep in 66 Yes, I got my first Doctor Who, and um, it was playing the Cyber Controller for Patrick. Um, uh, oh, Charlton. I was thinking not Martin, Patrick Charlton. Pat Charlton. 
who, uh, whom I had met before, and he, he was actually in a play that I wrote, a radio play. I played the lead in that. So, uh, with a cyber controller, yes, I was chosen for that because I was very tall. And all the cybermen were very tall. I'm six foot five. I think I was the tallest. So I was the controller. But uh, it was quite a tricky one to do, technically. But the thing was, I, uh, my agent said, oh, they've offered you, um, they were, um, uh, what they call, used to call the dear old BBC, perhaps they still do, a special low. <laughs> which meant that I, I'd, I'd worked, done quite a few bits and pieces for them over the years. So your free gradually rises. But every now and then they offer you a special loan, which was because it was children. I mean, it was, it was only a small part or something. You know, they'd always find an excuse. And I said, well, why, why are they offering a special loan for this? Because it, it was the main part, the main villain anyway. And apparently they said, well, because... Uh, they said to my agent, your client doesn't have to learn the lines. And I said, no, that's very true. I, I don't have to learn them. I don't have to speak the lines. I said, but I have to learn them. Because I have to know when to open the mouth. The mouth was on a spring hinge and a strap under my chin. So it was another actor, Peter Hawkins, who was the top, uh, you know, he was the voice man there. And he was off camera with a microphone. Because they didn't have the technicalities then to have a microphone under the costume for me to speak my own line. So, but I had to know when the cues came to open this mouth and Peter said the line and then I shut the mouth. So I had to know the dialogue. But they accepted that, the beeb, and, uh, and they paid up. <laughs> yeah. And it's, um, it's a funny thing about that one. It was the, the very first Cyberman the tomb of the Cybermen, it's called. I think it was the first time they appeared. And I, I've been to a lot of Doctor Who conferences, and that was, that's the one that seems to really catch people's imagination. And it went on for years. I was always asked when I went to conferences, that was the one people wanted to know about. But nobody had seen it because it was lost. For years it was lost. I remember going to one in um, Bath, big hotel room, must have been six, seven hundred people there. And they were bombarding me with stories, with questions about two. And I said, how many of you here have actually seen it? And about six hands went up. Nobody had seen it, but it just caught the imagination until a copy was found. And I believe it was a cupboard in the BBC's offices in Hong Kong, wasn't it, to everybody's astonishment. And, of course, it was put out. Um, there was a big special showing of it at the, at the BFI uh, in... Uh, it was in... in, um, in uh, uh, in Piccadilly, that's right, I remember going there, being very interested, because I'd forgotten who was in it, and suddenly seeing all these face people I'd worked with, you know, half years later, and forgotten all about that. So that was very interesting. Uh, and then I was asked to do it again some years later, but I couldn't, because I was doing something else. So they kept faith with the character, and they gave the lines and the character to another actor, but they called him the cyber leader. Yeah. So there's still only been one cyber control. But with, then, with uh, no handles, but with a yes. head. That's just you. And then again, um, but I did do it some years again. They were, I was asked to do it, and I was a paid off. That was with uh, Colin Big, I yeah. think it was, it was Colin. But I do remember about that, that... Um, 
There was a scene in it, and I couldn't believe it when I... Because I didn't realise what was going on in, when we actually filmed it, because it, it was a little bit put in afterwards. There was a character in it who I wanted information from. He was an Englishman, you know, I mean a human, human being. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't speak, so I gave a signal to one of my minions who went up to him and squeezed his hand. Mm. And in the close-up, you see blood yeah. dripping out. It was awful. Well, not a complaint about that. And I think when it was shown in Australia, it... Um, I cut that, cut that. But no, the, also, the, yes, <laughs> I caused a bit of an embarrassment because uh, when we started the production, um, this, uh, and I had the costume, uh, uh, and they'd forgotten this business about the mouth opening. And I just had an ordinary head. It was my original head. Had this mouth. Also had a brain that pulsed, mm. pulsed. And you could see the sort of glowing and veins in the skulls. Uh, that had been forgotten as well, so it wasn't quite so effective, I think, uh, a costume. But uh, when I said, what about the mouth? And I, I said about this mouth and opening shutting. And there was a nasty silence because, you know, the costume director was there and the producer and the director. And I, I rather embarrassed everybody, including myself, really. I should have kept my mouth shut. But here it is, you see these things. So that was with uh, Colin Baker, that was fine. And you got to do the lines this time? I got to do the lines, yes. Uh, and in fact the other parts I played I did the lines but um, so I worked with four different doctors so there was, there was um, Colin, Patrick and Colin Baker and John Pertwee that was the Ogram yes I never really quite got to grips with the Ogram uh, I was second Ogram first Ogram was, was Stephen Thorne old chum who had been with me, he and his wife, and we'd all been on the, on the telephones for the minicab firm. I was, oh, right. Yes, that's where I first met him there. And then we did a lot of radio together because he's got a very good voice. He's, he recorded a lot of books. He, but, he's, uh, he's done this project. He has, all right. Uh, yes, I see him occasionally at these uh, conventions. But um, the thing about the Ogons was I never really got to grips with them because they couldn't speak very well. A bit like that. And uh, we were kept in cages uh, when we weren't working. And yet we could pilot spaceships. That didn't seem quite go together. But in rehearsal, I remember there was a scene where we were in our cage, cages and a fellow came along with our food. And we had, which he slopped on a ladle onto our plates, which, which he pushed his ladle through the bars onto our plates. So I thought of this joke where I pushed my plate out sideways through the bars, you see, and turned it upright, which meant, of course, when he put the food on, I couldn't get it back through the bars. So I turned the plate sideways, and of course all the food then fell on the floor, and got a big laugh in rehearsal. But Mr. Pertwee, oh no, 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 no jokes, no, except him, he was only... Oh, the other person in that who I was very, very fond of, uh, well, no, I wasn't fond of poetry, but the man I worked with quite a lot. Uh, oh dear, sorry, it's gone. Was the it name. Roger Delgado. Roger, Roger. Last one, yeah. Roger Delgado. He, um, I'd worked with him a lot again in radio, and also, uh, strangely enough, I'd been in a, a show with him at the Albert Hall, the Brom concert. It was a piece by um, uh, Harrison Burtwistle, uh, and Harrison Burtwistle directed us. And it needed four or five actors and a singer and a soprano and um, uh, a chamber orchestra of about 30. 
a very difficult piece. And they wanted me to do it because I could read music. And although I didn't sing, uh, I'm not that great a singer, but uh, I had to speak in time with the music. And being built with some music, of course, it changed. It changed its tempo for every, every other line, you know, every other bar. So it was very, very difficult to do, but I was also able to learn it. And Roger was in that, being uh, a doctor. And we did all these radio things as well. So I was, and he was a very, very sweet-natured man. He was one of the nicest, lovable men I, I've ever met in the business. And so when he had that terrible accident, that terrible death, it was very upsetting. And I, I think about him to this day, really. So that was that one. Then. Um, and another thing, oh, yes, the I did. great Men in a Suit performances in Doctor Who, proper character, it's a beautiful performance as the robot. Ah, I the robot. It. I love it. Yes, thank you. Yes, uh, I've had a lot of compliments on that. Because uh, again, I was able to <coughs> voice it myself. The, the voice was treated, <coughs> to make it sound mechanical. I, uh, having the lovely, late lamented, oh dear, I'm very sad, again, Liz, Liz was Slayton. I mean, she was lovely. She was absolutely enchanted. She was the one that really the robot fell a bit for me. He was the one that she, got, she sort of got through to him somehow because he had just a little bit of humanity in his makeup. Not just he wasn't just purely mechanical. But that was a, that was a dreadful costume to have to wear because it was enormous and very heavy, very clumsy, and I couldn't see where I was going. I was constantly falling over because the huge feet. Um, I'll have another green tea, please. Uh, uh, I'll have a coffee, thank you. Cappuccino, Well, that's a cliffhanger. Will Michael have chocolate or cinnamon on top of his cappuccino? Well, as the lady who worked in that um, cafe, which was a lovely, quiet place until we started recording, and then they proceeded to play the music loudly and then talk really loudly and then offer us drinks. How dare they? Um, as she saw fit to interrupt, I shall do so too and just ask you to come back next week for the conclusion of our conversation about Doctor Who and other animals and, as I say, to discover what it is that the cyber controller puts on top of his cappuccino froth. <laughs> I bet you will wait with bated breath, but while you do, please donate to Michael's charity, uh, which is the Actors Benevolent Fund. Actors Benevolent Fund, a popular one with, uh, with Who's Around interviewees, and rightly so, www.actorsbenevolentfund.com. Uh, all one word, I'm sure it's Actors. Actors Benevolent Fund, all one word, dot co, dot uk. I'm rather hoping they'll sort me out when I fall off my branch. Um, <laughs> in the meantime, uh, keep listening, um, come back uh, for part two, and uh, spread the word, and uh, have, uh, have a wonderful week. Uh, take care, bye-bye. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. I was in my laboratory at four o'clock that afternoon. And since then, between four and dinner time, I have lived out eight days. Such days as no human being ever lived before.
H.G. Wells, the time machine. Uh, yes. Uh, yes, thank you, thank you. How do you do? Uh, no, 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 please don't pull my clothes. These, these are mine. Good grief. That's not far off one, one million years. Yes, I know. Well, well, nearly. A different age or epoch. Owena, listen to me. I want to not... Uh, no, 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 not fruit. Listen. Listen. About the world below. The tunnels. The uh, dark world. Darkness. What's that? Ah, damnation! The panels! Who are you? Where are you from? <laughs> ah, damnation! Where's my machine? Owena! Owena! Be thou warlock! Be thou warlock! Big finish. We love stories.